Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend Richard died by suicide, I spent most of my 20s pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster and to remind us that we're not alone. Shame by far was the biggest symptom of all of my illness. All those things I spoke about at the beginning, oh, you're a children, oh, you think you're, oh, this, oh, you're always... As she says it on my um, doctor's notes, children's author with a very big imagination. Like, I didn't dream this. I wish I could have made this up. I'd make millions. I love what you said about shame not actually being a necessary emotion. It isn't. Also, what you were talking about there that, again, I've seen so much is that pressure that are put on mothers and motherhood. I had to hold Jet. You know, I wouldn't be annoyed at Jet if he was sick down my top or if he did a poo in his nappy, you know, if he couldn't walk or couldn't speak. And I had to be like that with myself. Today I'm joined by Laura Dockrell. Laura is an award-winning author, illustrator and performance poet. Laura has written 15 books for children and adults and was a top 10 literary talent from The Times. Laura has appeared on a host of TV programmes, including My Childhood Self Was Very Excited to See, Blue Peter. In 2020, Laura published What Have I Done?, which tells the story of her experience of postpartum psychosis, which she developed after the birth of her son. And it's also going to be turned into a TV drama. Alongside her book, Laura launched a podcast, Zombie Mum, to talk about the aspects of new parenthood that felt shadowy and shameful. In What Have I Done, Laura writes, There is a stigma surrounding postnatal mental health, and what even makes you a mother anyway? It is not found alone inside the simple act of carrying and birthing a child, I can tell you that. It took me ages to understand that I was a mum. In fact, it's still something I'm trying to understand. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, before we get into your story, something that's I was curious about, and I don't know why in particular, but I, what, what's drawn you to creating stories and writing and illustrating these books for children? And how did you get there? Sure. Well, um, I always say this whenever I go visiting schools and it is basically how can you make them the, what you love doing the most in the day? How can you make that your job? Um, I have this dream that one day I'll, you know, when I'm, you know, made it, I'll um, I'll start this thing called the Hob Centre, which is basically going to be like the job centre, but it's um, how to make your hobby come to life and how you could be paid to do your hobby. And that's kind of my secret dream. Um, I think playing, being outside, imagining pretending that you're you know going to Disneyland or in the Victorian days or a dinosaur or a mermaid for the day that's one of the true great privileges of the imagination and that's always what I'm trying to inspire and teach children but you know since my experience what you've touched on at the beginning I do feel even more so that how much I want to empower you know young people to 
know how to take care of their brains, not have shame and stigma, exactly what we're talking about here, and feel not a responsibility, but a kind of duty of care with children's books. But nobody told me, you know, I learned about, you know, how to um, multiply and divide and grammar and punctuation. I never learned the skills of properly asking for help, what depression looked like, what anxiety looked like. And that's kind of what I want, even more so want to introduce into my work going forward and I think also there was an extra sort of chucky messed up storybook twist you know you you write in for children's books that's what you've done as your career and then you have your own baby and you lose the plot and that was an extra kind of tarnish I felt like I would never be trusted to go back to my job afterwards so even more so I want to push myself into writing for young people oh I love that um and that's great that you go and you go into schools and meet lots of children and it's on Zoom now. I saw someone kick someone in the head the other day on Zoom. I was like, oh, how do I report this? <laughs> I see things in the cameras now and I'm like, oh. <laughs> Zoom needs a new feature. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and the other thing that really interested me was the romance of your relationship with Hugo and how you met oh. when you were teenagers. And I think that's just such a great place to start today. Um and I also listened to in, in your podcast where you interview Hugo as well. And yeah, just can you just tell me a little bit about how sure. you met, how you got back together after a time? Sure. Yeah. So um, Hugo is my, well, now husband, but we've been best friends for uh, over 20 years now. We met when we were 14 at, um, in Wandsworth Common. I think we'd gone to a house party that our, our, a friend had left my school midway in like year nine at 14 or something and gone to a mixed school. We were at a girls' school and we were like, oh my God, you have to share the wealth. And she had a big party and and um, he wasn't there, but we, we basically got kicked out of the party and were roaming these streets soaking wet and knocked on this guy's door. And um, he, we were like, what are you up to? And anyway, sitting in his house was Hugo on the stairs wearing these like bobbly little white socks. And it's like, mm, he's cute. But by this point, I was did have I had no relationship with my fanny. My fanny was like sort of sealed of a garden, you know. It was like had this like ring, don't touch me, like electric fence around it. I would friend zone myself with anybody. I just kind of thought, Pete, love isn't for me, guys. Like that's just so when suddenly I met him, I was like, oh um you know dutifully friend zoned myself and um we went through a lot together um he's his mum died when we were friends and we were young and I went to his mum's funeral and um that was just a blow that we weren't you know obviously prepared for and then um my parents broke up and he came to my mum's new wedding my mum's wedding new wedding my mum's wedding with her new partner and we just kept this friendship going through letters and mixtapes and then it almost happened it never did we'd never kissed and split ways age 20 he he went and joined the band the Maccabees and made all that happen and um I went and did my thing and then age 30 we with this I describe it as like sort of two whirlwinds that came together and yeah we we over a sort of strange coffee we realized maybe we <laughs> felt more about each other it anything that he takes now like if he doesn't communicate I'm like I have to remember you did take about 15 years to tell me how you truly felt so um yeah and then we end up having Jet four oh. years ago so with that coffee was it so was it a conversation that you realized you both wanted more we, from each other we'd both come a- out of long relationships and um I mean 30 seems to be quite a common theme with my f- friends and people that I know that you know you get to 29 and you're like oh goodness I mean I had this idea that by 30 I'd like 
own the Walt Disney Castle. That would be my house. And I'd have a pierced belly button and be the sixth member of the Spice Girls um, and definitely do cool st- stuff like be able to do the splits or whatever. And then I was like, oh, I can't even do the monkey bars. And why did I never use eye cream? And oh, why didn't I hydrate? This is my, this is me now and it's only going downhill. Um, and I just kind of checked everything around me. Um, and yeah, we, we just began, got talking again and he, um, his band had actually just announced they'd broken up. So that was the kind of reason why we met up again and on the other side of that. And uh, yeah, just kept in touch. And then, yeah, the I Love Yous came out, didn't The I Love Yous came out before the kiss even happened. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. I'm very frigid, so that worked well for me. <laughs> um, um, I, I promise my final question on this, and we'll get into the, what happened next, but were you absolutely terrified with that first kiss? How did that first kiss go? It went on for nine hours. Ooh. That was a long first kiss. I had a, I had a new beard made out of rash on my face. Oh, so it that. was a good kiss. It was a, yeah. And um, he's just amazing, honestly. I, I you know, what, what we're, what we're going to talk about, if I had done that with anybody else, you know, the friendship really had to come first. When you have a mental illness, you know, you lose so much of your sense of self, your instinct, your trust. And um, actually, I was just talking about this today because um, coincidentally, it's Maternal Mental Health Week this week. So we're talking a lot about this anyway. But uh, the responsibility of, of partners and close loved ones to see it's in those minute details, the acute details of knowing those tiny, tiny, you know, the way someone looks or acts or behaves. And when you're, if you are masking a mental illness, it's so reliant upon trust. And I think the fact that Hugo and I had known each other in all those ways and the complexities of us um, was totally reliant on that observation to, to help spot the symptoms and save my life really. Well, let's get into it. So um, should we start with you telling us what happened? So what did happen to you? Sure. Um, So I've never had a mental illness before. The only reason why I say that, not that it matters, there's no shame or or, or anything around that. Um, Just to say how really from up top that this can happen to anybody. I wasn't immune. You know, I sort of thought in my life, you know, that there was people that suffered with mental illness and people that didn't naively um and I'm not afraid to say that because I think that is kind of the common thing that we're fed um now being on the other side I have learned that you know it just wasn't my day it was like being hit by a car and it can happen to anybody um so I hadn't even really had more of a day of anxiety uh, you know minor anxiety um so I got pregnant was was definitely the happiest I'd ever been felt in love safe um supported really lucky to have family and friends close by. I was um, 31 at this point, so I felt like I reasonably knew myself um, and didn't overdo it on the research, uh, was was told, and I've got, um, you know, speech marks, a normal, healthy pregnancy, um, with no reason why anything should go wrong. I was overdue. Uh, weirdly, looking back, you know, I did have an enormous amount of energy. I remember, not manic, but on the day of, you know, even 
my son being induced, I felt like I wanted to go for a run. And I'd been reading a little bit in this time because you do have a lot of time on your hands, mostly in these lot when you and sleepless nights already was probably kicking in your back hurts, you know, you're uncomfortable. And people had said, Oh, you know, you swell, you know, you sort of feel teapot like your nose bloats or all these things. But then it becomes like, what are you, you know, it would honestly say, you know, are you sprouting feathers and clucking like a chicken. Yeah, that means the baby's going to be due. It just becomes completely anything. So it is really hard to decipher what is, you know, to look out for early signs of labour. Went to be induced. It happened to be Valentine's Day. And apparently everybody wants a Valentine's baby. Um, I certainly didn't. I was just like, but is everyone else also, you know, this isn't booking a, a hotel in Paris. You know, I'm two weeks overdue. Um, and very quickly, I panic just sort of set in, truly because I didn't feel ready to give birth. I felt like like I could probably go clubbing. And um, Ted did my, um, that, that when I was hearing from the midwives, your baby's coming tonight, this suddenly really freaked me because I was like, I'm surely my body, it, you know, you know when you need to go for a poo, right? If someone said a poo's coming out of you right now, you'd be like, no, it isn't. I don't feel, unless you're going to operate. So this was frightening me. Had my blood pressure checked and it was just going through the roof. And every time this blood pressure machine came out, it would just send me, you know, my heart would just race and, and everything would panic me. And I'd been having this creeping up during the labor, um, during the pregnancy, sorry. Cut to um, everything pretty much going wrong to... Um, basically jet uh had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck twice he was the wrong way around he had I had my placenta had basically failed inside so he was starving inside me but nobody had recognized he came out really small um via an emergency cesarean that I called it was just a casserole of nonsense basically and I'd been fortunate enough to never have to really go to hospital before for anything I'd broken my wrist when I was young but nothing extreme so this was all just really panicky and not how I was thinking it was going to go then again it really is and um very quickly I just became I think I checked out really there was just so much bad news being given to me one minute after the other and you know totally you know suiting this podcast title the whole time I was checking in on everybody else have you had a salad to the midwife so you okay have you been for a wee me yeah I'm fine I'm fine midwife like I look like a Frida Kahlo self-portrait like a butcher's front window with my guts hanging out and I'm checking in on everybody else um then I was in a shared ward like a maternity ward I understand everybody is doing their best so I'm not here you know uh I'm not prescribing blame to the NHS or anybody that was there, but um, it was like a kind of eight parents, you know, in a um, in a boiling hot room um, with babies just taking turns to cry, waking each other up. So I just didn't sleep. And I, I think I became quite crazy in there. Um, feral. Um, I had this strange side effect of the epidural, which meant I just wanted to scratch all the time. I was scratching until I was like bleeding, feeding not because Jet was starving, as I said, inside me. He wanted to feed for 24 hours straight without any break um, and sleep deprivation just built up with shock. And, and I thought when I got home, I would be OK, but I was not OK. Things just got worse and worse. Yeah, that traumatic birth experience is an important part of the story because that could have been yeah almost the beginnings of what came next um so tell me what happened once you got home and as you said you realized you weren't okay sure so um well first of all I just couldn't sleep at all I had this real sense of danger running through me okay so maybe the beginnings of it was a little bit like when you um I describe it to that sort of end of six weeks summer holidays at school going back to to school the next day and you've got that dread or coming out of the cinema at like 
a weird time, you know, like four o'clock in winter and you're like, oh, where's my sense of time? So everything just felt very abstract and I don't, didn't feel grounded at all or rooted. So coming back to even returning home, I'd been away for a week. It just felt like a strange holiday home and everything felt like I was treading on a path that wasn't mine. And um, I knew I needed help straight away. So we called support in from family that was meant to be to help me rest, but I couldn't rest. I had to be on guard. Uh, every ambulance or police car that was coming by, I started thinking, is that for me? Have I done something wrong? Um, all those little doubts that we have all the time in our minds, you know, you know, you might be walking down the road one day and go, you know, imagine if I just threw myself into the River Thames right now. Imagine if I just dashed my phone like into the sea or whatever. It was like that, but like a million times sped up racing thoughts just quickly turned into panic um and I was going to the GP they were saying is it PTSD you know do you have shock or trauma from the birth I was maybe saying yeah again being fine even to the doctor but I was like it isn't that this is something else I know it is um again insomnia no appetite to look at I did not look like I had just had a baby I looked really unhealthy and pale and scared my eyes were like really wide um and just feeding non-stop uh, and then within a week, I uh, I started having thoughts that like weren't really mine that I had no control of. And somebody had bought us a giant teddy bear, sort of the size of a, a door, somebody that must not have a child. And I looked into the, I was like, that, I think that bear's watching me. And that's when that tiny thought just became an absolute reality. And I didn't, you know, looking back, if I had known, understood maybe a little bit of insight, what mental illness was, I might have been able to go, hold on, Laura, you need to go to get a really good night's sleep. And yeah, I didn't have the reserves or the energy to understand that was an anxious thought. Instead, I was like, oh, that must be, I was so desperate for any sense of reality or a reason why I was feeling like this. I went down that chain, attaching that to the, we, we had a fig tree outside and that must be connected to that sending me messages on the radio and um then it just began this whole awful horror story narrative that I was a terrible person a terrible mother that I'd always lied and I wasn't who I said I was and that uh there was two things going on I was suicidal in my narrative and then I was suicidal because of my narrative so and that was like a rational suicidal trait if that makes sense so essentially I was battling my own self, which sounds so strange to anyone who hasn't experienced the mental illness. Like, could you just not be suicidal? <laughs> could you just get up and do, you know, I was perfectly safe. I was in my house. My family sort of camped out like Glastonbury Festival. I thought they were there to take care of the baby, but they were to take care of me. Um, and um, yeah, about, Jet was three weeks old and I was um, hospitalised in a psychiatric ward. I was meant to wait over the weekend, but I just couldn't wait. I was so ill you know the pain physically okay I'd had my cesarean I was bleeding you know I wasn't in the greatest shape but it wasn't phys physically but in my mind I've never ever experienced such pain than what I was in my mind in that moment and I woke up on my on my first mother's day didn't I perfect branding in a psychiatric ward and that was rock bottom day of my entire life you know crawling on my hands and knees to some sort of breakfast with a plastic knife and fork and a stranger watching me but it was also the best thing that ever happened to me because it got me it got me well and um I needed it actually I needed that and it sounds like when you were battling with yourself am I right in thinking and this is what I was thinking in the book when I was reading the book as well that you actually had an awareness that you were ill totally 
And so what is that like, that kind of the awareness you have an illness, but then believing these thoughts to be true, like, I can't even imagine how. Oh, that must babe, be. that is so, yes. I, I, I'm i really glad you said that, actually. And it's quite not many people even, we, but I haven't really talked about that with many people because it is so nuanced and hard to put into words. But I am very envious often of um, people that have this experience where they just lose it all and forget. You know, I've heard stories where people run down cars, you know, they're just like leaping on top of cars or believing they're in Portugal or that they're the God or their God or whatever. Someone once thought they were Cameron Diaz. Great. <laughs> you know, I, I am, um, I'm joking, but um, I, I had such sense of it's very scary that moment. I remember it, honestly. Even sometimes I, I think of it, it's the same mirror that I use every single day. I was literally, I was changing jet and I said to Hugo, can you take over a minute? And I remember, because I felt something around me that wasn't me. And it wasn't, this wasn't a voice how you see it in the movies, you know, that stereotypical kind of insidious version of horror movie of what it is like hearing a voice. I know that can happen, but this was more a quality than anything. Something was there that wasn't me. And I said, oh, can you just take over and look after Jet? And I went down the corridor towards the bathroom and I felt it come with me, whatever this voice was, into the bathroom. I remember looking at myself. My eyes just didn't look like me. And I remember something going, Kui, like, hi, I'm here. And I remember going, oh, great, I'm mad now. And that, do you know what it's like? Have you ever been drunk, really drunk? Yeah, a few times. <laughs> right. You know when you're really drunk sometimes and you sit on the toilet, you got it's your first moment on your own. So you're maybe with lots of people and you're at a party or something and you think, I'm just going to go for a wee. And first of all, you'll walk to the wee. You're like, oh, God, a bit drunk. And then you know, and you sit on the toilet and then you go, oh, great, I'm really drunk now. You might even say something out loud. You might sing or you might say something. You might look in the mirror and go, oh, you, really, you pissed bitch. <laughs> it's like that a bit but yeah. with alcohol you know you're gonna eat a cheeseburger you go to sleep and you're gonna be fine it's like that but it's a different and you don't know how to you don't know how you got there and you don't know how to bring it back yeah that that's what really struck me when reading your experience I, I I thought it was like as you said that oh I think I'm Cameron Diaz I thought it was a completely unaware experience and actually I found it much more um yeah, like upsetting to have that awareness and that battle um, because, yeah, you're almost like scared of yourself and that, and, and that kind totally, of... Totally, totally. Yeah, and there so. are moments of clarity where you go, oh, I feel okay now. You know, I might have a chat with my sister for 20 minutes and I'll go, I don't know even know what that was. I feel okay now. That's quite common. And then it will just go back again. And then the, the, the scariest thing of it all, which is very horror filmy and... Uh, this is the this is a true bit is that um, you lose all sense of instinct and trust so even a doctor who is going to you this is what you have this is what you need to take you go okay okay you feel moment momentarily pacified or reassured a second away with your thoughts they're lying they're in on it you can't trust them no Laura you know because you have these moments of clarity that's the scary bit that's the Rubik's Cube and any 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 film I see or anything that has a portrayal like that that is very accurate because that bit is the, is the scariest bit of all. Yeah and I think what's an incredible testament to your writing is how much I could actually imagine being in that situation the way you write about it and you made it seem so much more real and like it could actually 
yeah, it was almost, it, it was relatable and it made me think this could happen to me, it could happen to anyone, which I'd, all, I'd never really thought about before reading mm. and that kind of paranoia. Because I think, as you say, we all have these thoughts, but then it's that step. I think you use the example of chopping carrots so I could do, do something with this knife. But with your illness, you act, there was that one step like, oh, I actually could do something with this. Like that yeah. was, that helped me understand that, oh yeah, we're, we're only, we're only really one step away from this in our Oh, or like you know you must get that feeling when you um you know like anxiety the next day you think you've upset people or offended people or you know you don't hear from a friend for a while they don't text you back and then a crazy thought might go maybe they hate me maybe I did say something rude about them and they heard these are normal we have these all the time but imagine that like with no rationality or no reserves just times a million basically and you're living constantly in that um which is when anybody says they they compare mental um illness with a weakness I'm like you have no idea it is you have to be a, a psychological athlete to take it on yeah and that, I think that's why it's so amazing for you to tell your story because the closer we bring ourselves to it the less shame and stigma can be attached to it and again in your book you talk about how much shame there is around motherhood in general even without postpartum psychosis and you also talk about postnatal depression um yeah like where the shame and stigma is real and were you kind of aware of that at the time while you had your illness definitely and um, well a few things so I mean shame I'm so glad you brought that up because I I it's an I said it's a difficult thing to do in the first place but once you remove shame from anything it's wild how quickly shame happily leaves your life and that is so telling because it made me realise that shame is not a necessary emotion. We don't actually require it. We don't need shame in our life. There's, there's no purpose for it. Whereas, you know, we might need anger or, or you know, joy, um, resentment, guilt. But shame, there's no space. And once you practice getting shame out of the way, it's like, oh, why did I even have you? Shame, by far, was the biggest symptom of all of my illness all those things I spoke about at the beginning oh you're a children oh you thought you oh this oh you're always a bit theatrical and a bit correct as she says it on my um doctor's notes children's author with a very big imagination like I didn't dream this I wish I could have made this up I'd make millions if I could have made you know make stories like this up and live them out I'd be the best method actor ever like you can't create this um I remember um, a, ne- a next door neighbour actually just saying to me, just let, I wonder if you let the shame go, just watch how quickly, just watch. And and it's so true. Once you let that go, recovery is really possible. It blinds you. Um, it With it being Maternal Mental Health Week, we put some things out. You know, I work very closely with, the, I'm an ambassador of the charity action on postpartum psychosis, which even that to me sounds crazy because I didn't think I was even going to be alive. To now be their ambassador is so incredible. And the majority of their job, I swear to you, is straightening out horrible journalists' articles that are misdirecting. So they'll put something really positive and hopeful, a story of recovery, um, a lived experience story by somebody who has, gone you know survived postnatal depression and then they'll link to a you know a story of suicide or hurting a baby for example and it's so toxic I have no uh, desire whatsoever to hurt 
my son, Jet, it was all about myself. And that's because I was trapped in a narrative. If anything, look, I'm not uh, standing by this now or, or speaking for anybody else. But in that moment of pain, I believed that the world outside me and what was going to happen was a greater threat or danger than what I could take over my own life, if that makes sense. So um, I, I believed that me having that in my own hands, having control was to protect what worst damage I could do to anybody else if that makes sense so when people say mental illness that person suffering is scary no they're scared they're the scared one and if we all change our mentality towards that if we're able to speak about it I feel so fortunate and I'm sorry it is a position of privilege being a white middle class woman with supportive friends and family around that I was able to say to come through this and do be on even on this podcast many people don't believe they can do that so I appreciate how lucky I am and grateful. And shame is so much of what inflames the stigma. Yeah, and I'd never made that connection, actually, because the book's called What Have I Done? And that really is the leading narrative that you were holding. And that is exactly what shame is. It's I'm a bad person. And again, you were carrying that with extreme. Um, How did you let that shame go? I just practice, I would, um, CBT really is my number one boyfriend. And when I learned CBT, I mean, let me just make it clear to anybody listening who's in the trenches or going through it. You can only really, I mean, I tried to learn CBT when I was definitely still in, you know, recovering from psychosis. Your brain will not have the space for it because it is like learning a new language. But once you are there and ready to take it on, uh, part of it was, you know, in uh, the beginning of The Simpsons where he has to write on the chalkboard whatever the teacher set him to do. I would do that every morning with Jet sleeping on me. Whilst writing the book, um, I would write down, you know, I'm a fallible human being with strengths and weak strengths and weaknesses. I'm a fallible human being with strengths and weaknesses over and over and over again or whatever, you know, the float mantra that I've put in the book, the Claire Weeks um, quote or whatever I, I was, you know, I would prefer to be a great mum, but I don't have to be a great mum right now. I would prefer, I would like to just changing my language and anything that ever felt, you know, I one of the big things I had to learn was self-compassion, which sounds, we hear these words, be kind to yourself, you know, live, love, laugh, whatever that you want to put in your bedroom walls. And I didn't understand that. I thought that meant, you know, what people would say to me when I was suffering go for a run you need to be with your friends and go for a cheeky Prosecco brunch it's like what I realize now self-compassion is just going it is okay to just sit here today hold your baby and just live just get through this day Uh, it's okay not to sleep it's okay not to eat your dinner it's okay. Like, that's okay. You've missed a meal. You know, you're going to be able to feed your child. It's okay to go to formula. It's okay to have to ask a neighbor to go and get you some nappies today. It's okay. Like, and um, quite physically, you know, actually, if I hadn't have the insomnia taught me all this stuff, insomnia was, I was obsessed with sleeplessness, obsessed. Um, I had acupuncture, reflexology, everything um but actually I learned a lot through insomnia that I could apply to my real life which is training myself to be able to sleep again I had to teach I had to treat myself like I was a newborn again learn to sleep again learn to eat again learn to walk again give myself the care that I would give to Jet I was growing up with him I had to hold Jet you know I wouldn't be annoyed at Jet if he was sick down my top or if he did a poo in his nappy you know if he couldn't walk or couldn't speak and I had to be like that 
with myself and learning self-compassion when you make the spa- extra space for that shame just leaves it, it has no place here girl I love what you said about shame not actually being a necessary emotion it isn't um, and also you also what you were talking about there that again I've seen so much is that pressure that are put on mothers and motherhood um I kind of and, and then there's something else in your book that really jumped out at me I think because um I sort of was being facetious earlier when you asked if I'd been drunk because a lot of my book has a lot of um heavy drinking to numb my shame in it um and I've been asked a lot about it and asked I was actually asked yesterday if I still drink and I was like well yeah but anyway oh. um, <laughs> um but something that stuck out for me um in your book was that thing about mothers sort of making jokes about when they can drink it's five o'clock somewhere and again this is something I'm I'm not um a mother but lots of I know a lot of people who are um and there is that there is something in that and and I was kind of interested to hear yeah what what you think about motherhood and shame and 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 how that perhaps drinking might be tying into it and the pressures and also do you think it's getting worse the pressure to be a perfect mother as time goes on I think this is, I mean, a broader, bigger question, you know, with parenthood. And I think we're at a really interesting phase um, because we're realising that everybody can be a parent, everybody and anybody can be. And that's a really beautiful time to arrive at. So even though I'm using the word, um, you know, mums right now and I'm talking to you, I am responding to parental. I'm talking about parental mental health, not just maternal mental health, because, I, I think that otherwise it's boxing us in too much and I'm not interested in labelling um, or hurting anybody. But, you know, speaking from that stereotype, because it does feed into the stereotype in this conversation, you know, there's this, we've seen, you know, again, in speech marks, the, you know, mad woman in the attic in Jane Eyre, um, or the, you know, this kind of, we've seen it in portrayals of films. We've grown up with this, you know, the, the mum who's had her baby and we just see the scrubby dressing gown and the door ajar. And then the house gets set on fire mysteriously one night. And these are just such insidious portrayals of, um, postnatal depression, uh, postpartum psychosis. Um, and, and we, and we still have this narrative, you know, even my son, Jet, I, I'm trying my absolute best to keep him as open-minded as possible and have a, have a beautiful response to the world, but he'll still say, no, but you're the mum, you know, you're the mum. Um, and he's four and that comes to me making pasta or washing his clothes or whatever. You're the mum. Um, we can't help but accidentally fall into them because of the way that the world is unfortunately constructed. Um, So, yeah, I think this kind of, there is a responsibility. I think we feel unnecessary expectation to be a perfect mum that once we have this baby overnight, we'll be able to, you know, wear anklets and hang sheets of washing on the line. Oh, sorry, I'm covered in flour, you know, with the... uh, um, you might, you know, I've just been baking brownies for everybody. And certainly when the health visitors came over, I mean, you would have seen it in the book. I mean, I kind of felt like I was being judged on, on being a mother, being that perfect housewife mum, which has never even entered my mind in a single second to be that. I mean, my mum is not like that. Um, my dad was the one that did all the fish fingers and chips and beans, you know? So, um, I suddenly was like, oh, I need to be like, there's something in the oven. And and I and I had written down this book of, it was like 
the notes, the scribblings of a train spotter. You know, it was, uh, he, you know, blinked, jet blinked, jet yawned, jet coughed. And I wanted to show her how well I'd done at being a mum. And actually, you know, the, 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 the irony was the kid is usually nine times out of 10 all right. It was me that needed the help, you know. And so, yeah, these kind of, I mean, I've actually been sober for a year and a half um, and I'm seeing even more so now these kind of throwaway, I I began to use alcohol as medication. So I do understand the self-medicating need. And even that came with a shameful new but I'm doing this now so you can't tell me what you know what's what and I was looking forward to my first gin and tonic after I I thought I deserved that gin and tonic um, and felt I should be doing it also in a strange way because I wanted other people to go she's still a normal mum see look at her having her gin and tonic which again is toxic in its own capacity um so yeah I, I don't know if it's getting worse I think what is great is that we are now speaking up about it and I'm hoping that with this shift that we're all feeling it's not going to be so much oh mum mother's mother's ruin you know it's parental it's a parental thing that we can all then tackle and talk about in an open forum which is what needs to happen and tell us a bit about your recovery oh well that book that you've read what have I done that book saved my life I wrote that book with Jet on my chest um and I I I was changing my mind every day if I going to write this on my not I I put a a blog out on mother of all lists with Clemmie Telford who we were pregnant around the same time and you know this is the a a, you know anybody listening who's worried about somebody or thinks oh I'm not going to have a baby or I haven't got babies this doesn't respond to me you know um actually you do still have a you know every this is a this is a human universal conversation you know you can help Clemmy you know dropped me a note because I'd gone so quiet you know that wasn't you know on social media whatever everything I just went silent if you know you know someone that's just had a baby and they've okay yeah maybe they're doing that thing where they're cocooning and being safe if you check in and they're still being quiet and they're not that is kind of a first warning sign that something could be wrong so anyone listening thinking this doesn't apply to me this whole conversation it actually really can you could be a a superhero in a tracksuit um and just might not even know it. So that that I ended up putting that blog out and then regretting it because of shame. So that went out. The next day, I couldn't even walk to the supermarket. I felt like my whole area, my whole tap, like where I live, was like, oh, that's her. She's the bad mum. She's the one who I thought imagined them thinking that I tried to, you know, was, was I was I a baby killer? Was I this? Was I children's? I could, you write headlines in your head that obviously no one's going to ever know about. Um, and then, um, and then, but it, it was coming out. And so I just thought, let me just do it on my phone because if I write this book on my phone, it might feel more um, informal and I could just delete it at any point. And I just wrote little chapters and then I just send it over. I didn't read anything back, um, which I wish I could remember moving forward. Now I read every single paragraph back 1000 times and it's such a good way to get hard stuff out just write it and send it off and um my, I think my family at first were a little bit cautious like are you sure you should? And I was doing the therapy and everything um and then they just started seeing the improvement along with me and I think once I had talking about shame once I threw that out into the world I mean I felt like I was emotionally running down the streets naked but there was a liberation in that if I fall over in the street now do you think I care no I don't 
if I get a rejection from something, I'm like, okay, cool, because this is all a lot easier and a lot better than what was meant to be the best time of my life whilst I was in a psychiatric ward. No, that was not the best time of my life. Chatting to you now is a much better time of my life. Um, but yeah, medication um, I, I really saved me. And there's I was so, I don't even like taking a paracetamol. I don't even like drinking real tea leaves, loose tea leaves, because it makes me feel on edge. Then suddenly I was taking all these trips to hospital. I was rattling, you know, I felt like I was taking all these tablets. You know, we all know someone that drinks too many mimosas. We don't know many people that are on antipsychotics with a newborn and on major sleeping tablets and all the rest of it. If we, again, normalise these conversations, once you start talking about it, you'll be surprised how many people say, oh, I was on antidepressants for a while, they really helped me, or I still take antidepressants. Normalising these conversations can actually save someone's life. And it's the shame that takes you to that next level. Um, Recovery has been amazing. You know, I, I'm, so, I'm grateful for my illness because I feel so much more part of um, being a human. You know, I feel like I'm, I understand now when old people will go, oh, life's hard or life's full of ups and downs. They're not talking about redundancy or newspapers. They're talking about this real stuff, this real Thing that makes the world go round so I feel like I'm a better mother because of it yeah I've heard you talk about that the gratitude you have for your experience and how it's um as you just said like shaped your perspective and how you see and interact with the world so I think it's really amazing to be able to look back on something like that and have that view of it there's that quote isn't it I'll probably get it all wrong but it said um someone I love once gave me a box of darkness and I realized that that too was a gift. Um, and that's exactly how this has felt at the time. You know, that's the other thing. I don't want to cry actually because uh, I just remembered there was another suicidal thread, you know, running at the same time, which is also the pain that you're, you're feeling, you know, to look at with somebody with mental illness. You may, actually, it probably was written all over me because it, it changes the, your gait, it changes the way you walk, the way you look. But, you know, I was in so much pain. It was like uh, desperate to be put out of pain. That's honestly how I felt. Um, and why now, looking back, would I feel um shame for you know I wouldn't feel now guilty if I was having a heart attack why would I feel embarrassed or guilty about that but I sure as hell would be so grateful to have made it through and I see it now what happened to me I do look at it like a heart attack on the brain I do I believe a suicidal thought is a heart attack or you know on the brain um it has meant that in my 30s I am going to take really great care of myself I'm going to rest and look after myself and give pure love out there and and it it is that my experience is lined in every single thing I do now it has absolutely shaped me for the better as I said I needed it I I needed it so and I teach Jet about it we talk about it and my my parents I felt like they talked to me about so much how did they leave this out you know, and you've got like five thoughts happening at once. Oh, like, God, which yeah, one, totally. which one should I Which one should I pick? Um, but w- what I wanted to draw out is, as well that I really appreciated in your book is you do take us on a journey with your brain. Like you really explain what's happening, what the thoughts are. And there was one extract um, where you gave me, someone who's lost a partner to suicide, insight into what might be going through someone's brain at that time. And I haven't, 
and I've been doing this work for a few years, I've never come across an insight like that before. And so I just feel really grateful that you've really helped us come into your brain with you in your story. And it's also told in such a compelling and interesting and engaging way as well. And there's also humor in it. I was kind of um, at the same time. And so to achieve all those things, Two, as you say, a book is a conversation. It's just such a powerful thing to do. And, and I'm really grateful that you've done this. And I'm grateful for you coming on and, and sharing your story oh, with us as well. Tiffany, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That is just unbelievably sad for you. I'm so, so, so sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, and you kind of wish there are things that you could have done. Um, yeah, I think I would have had this understanding but before experiencing it myself I would have thought those things that many people say that are not helpful that suicidal thoughts are selfish or cowardly or any of those things when you're in the moment you you honestly believe you're you're doing this to help other people to make their life easier and um, I'm grateful for that insight as well because now I hope I would like to think that I'm a better friend for people to come to when they are having I'm having those sort of thoughts whereas before I might have not have been that person because I might have said the wrong stupid thing that's not helpful in that moment um it's one of those dark lessons that you can only really learn by living it yourself um and um I just hope that you're okay I'm really sorry that happened to you Mm. and it's very amazing that you're helping other people by doing this you're probably saving lives without even realizing it well I was thinking that when reading your book I was like now I know what to look out for whether it's me because I'd like to have a baby soon or um, a friend and again it's you really opened my eyes about the realities of what this experience is like because there is that almost like as you said that um, almost comic like mad woman in the attic image and to tear open that is just it's just really important and um, am I right that postpartum psychosis affects one in 1000 mothers yeah but uh suicide is the number one death cause of death in new mums can you believe that oh, wow i didn't actually know that yeah um it's quite yeah. shocking really and yet we again just keep make out as if you know let's not talk about it someone just messaged me this morning actually saying that how we're talking about how it's not taught in um, antenatal classes uh postnatal depression or postpartum psychosis is really talked about what somebody messaged me this morning saying that it was spoken about but they asked all partners to leave the room which just to me seems the opposite you know it's like no this is their chance where they can you know your job is not just go shop go shop and get biscuits also you can be the the superhero here to spot out all those things to save somebody's life. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so thank much you for sharing so the much. story. Um, and this is a question we ask at the end of the show. Um, pretending to be fine is something we do on a daily basis. Is there a small or recent way that you've done that recent? done that recently I've said recently twice, but yeah. <laughs> yes, um, we went on a holiday. It was my first time going on holiday um, I'll say recently too, um, in the uh, in the whole COVID um, thing that we managed to get away. We went away for four days, and there was a water park in our resort, and um, 
I was like, I have this thing now. I don't know if you watch SAS, that training program with that guy. And sometimes I became a bit of a martyr in my recovery for a little bit of it where I was like, I have to do things like go on SAS to prove to myself and the world that I'm really robust and strong and basically being really mean to myself. I was doing these weightlifting and insane things just to feel like I needed to be strong and robust now I'm nothing like that. Um, and so things I was like, when I'm faced with things that used to frighten me, I water slides, I'll just go right down it to prove to everyone I'm fine. But basically the idea of me going down this water slide made Jet really cry, my little boy, he didn't want me to do it. And I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I was pretending to be fine. Long story short, I climbed all the way up, calmed him down. When I got to the water slide, being all defiant, and I was just really fucking scared to go down this water slide. I was like, I don't want to go down here. And the old me in that one, it was interesting because I would have been scared, but I still would have probably thought I had to go down it to still prove that I was okay. I went through all these emotions. I didn't nearly go down it. I did. I didn't. I didn't. In the end, I pretended that it was Jet that made me need to go down the climb back down the water, down the stairs. Everyone was sort of watching me with my, you know, rubber dinghy climbing my way back down that mountain. But it wasn't. It was because I was just scared and I was pretending to be fine. You have that a lot when you're a mum as well. I think you're pretending to be, when the airplane has turbulence, you're scared, but you've got to still put on that brave face. Um, And so, yeah, I I put it out on, um, on Twitter, actually. And then some person said really earnestly to me, like, sorry about that Laura about me not being able to achieve the water slide I know sorry about that um so yes I did that very recently well thank you so much and thank you again for coming on and speaking to me it's been lovely to chat to you and we will of course be sharing your book and your work in the show notes so everyone can find you oh thank you so much I appreciate that Thank you for listening to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, hosted by me, Tiffany Philippou. Anna Quadrirado is the executive producer. Editing and mixing is by Chris Bannister. And you may recognise us because we've also got another show called Is This Working? So you can check that out too. And if you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review as that really helps more people find the show too. Thank you.